You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. History Picks the President 2008 The members of the Constitutional Convention who met in a hot, fly-infested room in Philadelphia State House, 1787, the men sometimes known as the Framers, the Founding Fathers, struggled a good deal with the office of the presidency, not the least of which what it would be called, executive, magistrate, highness. If it seems trivial now, it wasn't then. The men creating the Constitution knew that the proposed new government would be assailed by opponents, some of whom were in the room as they debated. The growing democratic movement in the back country of America would not see the wisdom of their wonderful mechanism for government and the executive this new office that looked so much like a king but wasn't, they knew it would be the center of attack. President was the least regal-sounding name. The name literally means one who presides, implies more a speaker of parliament than a king, one who watches the action around him and steps in rarely. As a name, it is decidedly passive. Oh, how little did the name do to slow down the powers attributed to the office. From the first presidency of George Washington, it was an office that was vigorous. It has never risen to the level of a king, though close, in times when the legislature and the executive agree. But it has always been an office that has been sought after. And from the second term of George Washington, parties developed to keep and hold the office and all its powers. Even in its lowest moments of passive presidents such as Herbert Hoover or James Buchanan, the office was powerful and worthy of contest by a party who thought they could do better than the incumbent. 2008 is guaranteed to be a history-breaking election. A woman or an African-American could be the nominee for president or vice president. A three-way race, a four-way race. It's already the first real contest on both sides of the aisle, 20 years. The first presidential race without an incumbent VP or president in 56 years. This book is called History Picks the President 2008, and it is a bit of a bold title. Can history truly pick the president? It is the very possibility of a break with history that limits, or we might say clarifies, the role of history in assessing what will happen in the future. It's not unlike applying statistics to sports. It can be used correctly and abused. Historical trends are true until they are not true. Every president lost seats in the sixth year of their presidency until Bill Clinton didn't and broke a 200-year trend. But still, as in that example, the trend is still a highly useful tool. History can help us put the president in perspective. But of course it can't stop the chips from falling where they may. In this audiobook, I'll talk about some historical trends that may be helpful in seeing and understanding the 2008 election and what could possibly happen. 
Chapter 1. The Effects of Vice Presidential Candidate Selection on the Presidential Campaign An old saying often repeated by one of America's many vice presidents, Thomas Marshall, is that a mother had two sons. One ran away and the other became vice president. Neither were heard from again. Marshall was known for his jokes and took a lot in stride. When nominated, he said it was no surprise. He was from Indiana, he said, and Indiana was the perfect place for a second-place person to come from. He performed his job, which was to carry the state of Indiana for the 1912 Wilson-Marshall ticket, performed that job very well, and did little else in the vice presidency over two terms. In 1904, Democratic delegates came to the convention in St. Louis fairly depressed. There was no way, by any means, they were going to beat the most popular, youngest, active, forward-looking president in American history. They nominated Alton Parker, an obscure judge from New York. For vice president, they picked Harry Gossaway Davis. At 80 years old, he was and is the oldest man nominated for the vice presidency. And they picked him for a simple reason. Henry Gossaway Davis was loaded. He was a multimillionaire, and they hoped he would spend some of his fortune to finance the 1904 campaign. Unfortunately, he did not. Vice presidential selection was often not thought of much more than it was in that year. Usually there was one key self-serving reason for nominating a vice president. Aaron Burr was chosen in 1796 and 1800 as a Republican vice presidential candidate because he could help carry New York. Daniel Tompkins was chosen for much the same reason, though he was a bankrupt and a drunkard. Lincoln's quiet VP, Hannibal Hamlet, was chosen to balance the ticket between West and North. Governor Al Smith of New York chose Joseph Robinson to balance New York and Arkansas, a northerner and a southerner. Franklin Roosevelt chose Nance Garter to balance the same geographic regions, Texas and New York. Chester Arthur was chosen in 1880 because James Garfield was from Ohio, and this would balance the two powerhouses of Victorian American politics. Grover Cleveland chose Tom Hendricks to bring a Western name to the ticket and to help win Indiana. John Kern was brought in in 1908 to help win Indiana, as Thomas Marshall was brought in in 1912 with Wilson to help win Indiana. The vice presidential nominee was not always the choice of the presidential nominee, though usually the presidential nominee had a role. McKinley never chose Theodore Roosevelt. And Adelaide Stevenson in the 1950s, Wendell Wilkie in the 1940 election, threw the choice of the vice president to the convention to pick. Often the choice is made to heal wounds between factions in the party. Sonny Jim Sherman, a conservative from New York, was chosen to balance Taft, who was seen as more of a progressive from the Theodore Roosevelt School in 1908. Arthur and Garfield represented not only different geographics, but two factions of the Republican Party, the stalwarts and the half-breeds. Reagan chose the more moderate Bush after a divisive primary. These balances may help to present a stronger front, but often this is simply not realistic. In 1928, when Al Smith, who wanted to legalize alcohol, linked up with Joseph Robinson, again a southerner from Arkansas, 
The newspapers joked, a donkey with a wet head and a wagging dry tail just left the Houston convention. When Bryan chose Arthur Seward, a wealthy businessman, to balance the ticket in 1896, it did little to help him win over any business support, but did cost him the support of populist factions, who never supported Bryan again. When Michael Dukakis chose Lloyd Benson in 1988, the Texas senator was such a good pick that he almost eclipsed Dukakis. He defeated Dan Quayle at the vice presidential debate, and he had the highest favorability ratings of any of the four people running in the 1988 election. Yet, his home state of Texas went for Bush, and Dukakis lost the election. It's common political wisdom that only the top of the ticket matters. VPs don't. For the most part, the picking of vice presidential nominees is a campaign event, a blip on the trail, something that makes the media story for a little while, but not important to the election. And so like Clinton or Bush did, it's probably better to pick someone you like, someone who you feel a common bond with and will help you with the job, rather than a false feeling of healing the factionism of the party or trying to win on geography. But it's not totally a non-factor either. 1800, 1884, 1912, 1916, 1960, 1976, and 2000, not surprisingly, all of the laser-close elections of history were influenced in some way by the vice presidential selection. Different combinations of vice presidential candidates in the 2004 election, which came down to 100,000 votes, might have changed that decision. Still, while you can't totally ignore the vice presidential choice, the media's spin on who gets picked as vice president makes no sense given the history of, of its small possible role. Chapter 2, Experience and the Presidency Prior to becoming president, Andrew Johnson held every office possible in American democracy. He was a local town councilman, a mayor, a state legislator, a governor, a congressman, U.S. senator, and vice president. James Buchanan was ambassador to Great Britain, a United States senator, and Secretary of State under President Polk. William Howard Taft was a federal appeals court judge, a governor of the Philippine Territory during a period of rebellion in that country, Secretary of War, and an acting Secretary of State, as well as informally being Teddy Roosevelt's right-hand man. Martin Van Buren was a state senator, U.S. senator, Secretary of State, and vice president under Andrew Jackson before obtaining the presidency in his own name. And then there was Herbert Hoover. Hoover led a multi-million dollar drive to provide relief to the people of Belgium, a very high-profile position at the time. He was tapped by President Wilson to lead European relief efforts after the war. He was Secretary of Commerce during the 1920s, a time when the Commerce Department was the most important part of a pro-business administration in the 20s. When a disaster struck in 1927, governors of southern states begged President Coolidge to appoint Hoover, the only man they trusted to manage relief for a group of floods that hit the South. And all of this 
in his government career had been preceded by a successful business career in the mining industry. These men, Johnson, Buchanan, Taft, Van Buren, and Hoover, brought rich experience to the presidency. They're also among America's worst presidents when routinely ranked by historians. Abraham Lincoln had experience managing nothing greater than a general store in a law practice prior to his executive term. He served one two-year term as a Whig congressman. With only a limited military experience in the Illinois militia, Lincoln was an excellent commander-in-chief, able to correctly assess his general strengths and limitations, predict enemy movements, and set a long-term strategy that would beat the South. I need not tell you that he is routinely ranked as first or second best president, with the difference between he and Washington too arbitrary often to measure. Theodore Roosevelt was governor for two years and a vice president for nine months prior to becoming president. His most significant experience had been as a police commissioner of New York City and as an assistant Navy secretary at a time when the U.S. Navy, of course, was not as large as it is now. And he was the leader of the Rough Riders in the Spanish-American War. But he did not have a lot of elected or executive experience. Yet he transformed the presidency into the imperial bully pulpit we know today. Harry Truman did serve in the Senate roughly a decade prior to his presidency but in relative obscurity, and as the servant of Kansas City boss Tom Pendergast. As is illustrated time and time again in recent historical books, though not so much at the time, Truman turned out to be the right man and to make the right call both on using the atomic bomb and refocusing the country's energies towards the Cold War. Franklin Delano Roosevelt served a short time as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, as did his second cousin and just one term as governor prior to becoming president. Yet he turned out to be one of the greatest presidents ever, tackling the twin problems of the Depression and World War II. None of these last four presidents had cabinet-level experience, so perhaps experience doesn't matter. Or does it? There's no one ad for the presidency. Presidents have been sheriffs, lawyers, judges, business people, military heroes, and of course governors and senators. Only one man... Woodrow Wilson had a Ph.D. prior to obtaining the office. Many candidates get the question about experience. Barack Obama in this election, for instance, generated a lot of headlines. One question always abounds. Does the individual running have the experience to lead? Given the examples I started with, one might say there's no problem. Experience is not that important. But does that mean inexperience is an asset? Well, certainly cannot say that either. Benjamin Harrison was a one-term senator, Jimmy Carter a one-term governor, Warren Harding a one-term senator, and Franklin Pierce didn't finish his Senate term. And these guys pretty much lived up to expectations that their inexperience might dictate. They had huge problems, many of them stemming from lack of experience in Washington, lack of dealing with people in political situations, and lack of decision-making. They are not ranked successful at the time, or now, among the best presidents by historians. I think it's probable that historians will add the current president to that list, with only, with only one and a half terms as Texas governor, flanked by supposed experts in foreign policy that were made to give reassurance. I believe history will judge him as a president lacking 
personal skills that would enable him to grasp the foreign policy or domestic political situations around him. And hence, George W. Bush would add weight to the side of experience does matter and experts that are around you and information you're going to get do not. Some with a lot of experience, Washington, Jefferson, Reagan, although an actor, he did serve two turns as governor of the largest state in the country, Eisenhower, James Polk, had a lot of experience and also achieved much as a president. When the charge of non-experience is brought up against a candidate, it's normally in the area of foreign policy. How can a one-term governor or one-term senator lead the nation in such a trying time? And it'll always be a trying time, right? Yet true experience in foreign affairs is rare for presidents. Just a few have been secretaries of state. In fact, that office was a launching pad for president more commonly in the 19th century than it is today. Yet foreign policy is where many an inexperienced American president has prospered. Truman, Carter, Woodrow Wilson was a college president and a two-year governor, but was great at foreign politics. Steered us out of war, and then when we entered war, we did so with a minimum amount of casualties, put America on a new place in the world, although he didn't get his League of Nations. It was a victory, the fact that an American president was determining the future of the world. Then you have the example of President Kennedy, who came to the office with a limited amount of executive experience and had an early disaster in the Bay of Pigs, but then succeeded brilliantly in the Cuban Missile Crisis, which really changed the direction of the Cold War. Best said, experience is a wash. At best, it's a weak positive correlation. It helped in some cases, hurt in others. It's not conclusive. It doesn't seem to be a valid tool for such a complex job. The office is more dynamic than any static experience can count for. While president might be a great foreign policy genius, domestic problems could mount. A great economist president might be ruined by foreign affairs. Certainly events play a role. Hoover was sacked with the Great Depression. No amount of experience, it seems, could have helped combat that. Andrew Johnson was doomed, succeeding Lincoln and besieged by radical Republicans who wanted everything from him, more than they got from Lincoln. Carter's diligence was great for Camp David, but overshadowed by events in Iran. The immensely successful politician Van Buren was waylaid by a bank crisis right as his presidency started. But is it a cop-out, perhaps? Do we still have to answer the question, could experience determine how a president will lead with the myriad crises they might face? In evaluating that, I'm reminded of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's quote, and he said, The presidency is not merely an administrative office. That is the least of it. The biggest part of it is moral leadership. Moral leadership. What does that mean? Does it mean that a good president should go to church a lot or do good things? I don't think that's what he's getting at. The tenet that seems to run through presidencies is the ability to persuade. Successful presidents move people, congressmen, foreign leaders, cabinets, and the American people. If you see that in the person that you're picking, you're probably picking a successful president. Great communicators such as Washington, both Roosevelt's, Lincoln, and Reagan had effective presidencies. I put in the category of good, not great, but good communicators, Wilson, Kennedy, Clinton. While they had mixed results, the best moments came from their public communications. And when I speak of the ability to persuade, to communicate successfully, I'm not sure I mean just image. I'm not sure I mean just charisma or traction. I'm not even sure I mean a person who's a great orator, although I'm sure that's part of it. 
A good president needs to be convincing, concise, and in many ways, a happy face who says nothing will not be convincing. I'm not sure I'm looking for a Tony Blair. Reagan took concise stance on issues and framed it in ways that average voters could understand, in ways that were devastating for his opponents. The current president suffers from his lack of ability to communicate and persuade. He might have been the better of two lousy communicators running in 2004, in that he actually decided on a message. But it's clear that we need something different from the next president. So if you're going to look for experience, I would say look for experience that involves persuasion. Did the person speak to groups? Did the person have to cajole and get things done from a political a body? Lincoln was a lawyer. Reagan, of course, was an actor and a spokesperson. Wilson was a university president, high-profile job involving him selling his university, and then as a governor of a, of a state full of boss-controlled politicians to manage. And Clinton, well, he was always running for something. The presidency is not a managerial job. It's an executive job, but not a managerial one. Chapter 3, Presidential Pass-Offs When George Washington decided that he would not run for a third term as president, the country of just 18 years and the government of eight prepared for something new, a constitutional government without George Washington. The most logical successor to Washington would be Alexander Hamilton, the secretary of the largest department and the architect of the American economy, would be uniquely positioned to keep things going. Under Hamilton, the Treasury had really become the federal government. He had more employees than any other cabinet member. But Hamilton suffered a scandal in the Maria Reynolds affair, and this is where he had been having an affair with Maria Reynolds, and, and due to blackmail, was paying her husband not to reveal the story. The story, of course, got out, and Hamilton and the presidency was now impossible. John Jay, who negotiated a treaty with England, was too controversial because of that treaty. The Pickneys of South Carolina were well-liked by Hamilton and others, but unknown outside of the South. John Adams, the vice president, alone could appeal to New England, the Middle States, and perhaps, as an author of the Declaration of Independence, to some of the South, who were motivated by patriotism and the original revolution. So it was Adams. George Washington did something that, if it occurred today, would be considered outrageous. He waited to announce his resignation in 1796 until September of that year, since electors would meet in December, that made for a two-month campaign in a country where horse and carriage was still the method of transportation, and national campaigns were difficult. And Washington endorsed Adams. Although they were not from the same party, both Washington and Adams both considered the office of president to be nonpartisan. Yet Washington established a tradition that others would follow. The incumbent president does have a role in the selection of the next person to hold the office. Now, we don't have a situation like in some dictatorships where the president approves his successor and that's it. But the incumbent president is not uninvolved either. And that precedent goes all the way back to the nation's first president, Washington. The election of 1796 was the first partisan election, and it was competitive. Republicans settled on Thomas Jefferson, 
the Secretary of State under Washington, who had resigned in 1793 when he found that he increasingly had differences with the administration. Pennsylvania would go for Jefferson, partially with the help of pro-French newspapers in Philadelphia. After all, Jefferson and the Republicans were supporters of France and opponents of a continued policy of engaging with Great Britain. But Adams won New York, thanks to legislators who were aligned with Washington and who were selected as electors who would support the Federalist candidate. Washington's support was decisive. In 1960, President Eisenhower, another former general and president and a highly respected American, could not shorten the calendar for his vice president, Richard Nixon. It was going to be a full election year with a very dynamic candidate on the other side, John F. Kennedy. Eisenhower made some speeches, but he made the mistake of telling a reporter when asked about a significant decision that Richard Nixon had helped Eisenhower make Eisenhower said, Give me a week or two and I'll think of one. It was not how he meant to say it. Eisenhower meant no more than, Well, dear reporter, give me next week and I'll prepare a statement for you. It was not supposed to be a public statement. It was an off comment to a reporter about scheduling when he could get back to him. But it became a public statement and certainly the aggressive campaign of John Kennedy used it in their campaign commercials to show that Eisenhower didn't really want Richard Nixon to succeed him. Well, it was taken out of context, and Ike later complained to Nixon that if I had a dollar for every time they gave me that give-me-the-week business. There was a distance between Eisenhower and Nixon. It's hard to consider how, in a well-organized campaign designed to show how much Eisenhower's behind Nixon, Eisenhower would have made a statement like that. There was a distance between the two, Richard Nixon had agreed to some platform planks in the 1960 Republican convention which were unfavorable to the Eisenhower administration. That got Eisenhower annoyed. Eisenhower's people were not happy with the amount of time that the vice president was using him on the campaign trail. It was only really at the end of the election when Eisenhower was making speeches for Nixon. Nixon was trying to be his own person. And so there was conflict there that voters picked up on. James Madison, who had helped craft the Constitution and then became an opponent for the strong Constitutional Federalist Party and the leader of Republican opposition forces in the Congress, was an easy choice for Thomas Jefferson when he was retiring in 1808. Jefferson supported Madison. But there are others who did not like Madison, others in Virginia, such as the ambitious James Monroe or John Randolph, and they attempted to hand the presidency to James Monroe. But Jefferson's support for Madison was crucial and got him the necessary electors so that he would be elected president in 1808. In 1908, Roosevelt wanted his right-hand man, William Howard Taft, a man who had helped him out in one of the great crises late in the McKinley and early in the Roosevelt administration. The Philippines was a the big danger area where American troops were dying. Under Taft's administration, the problem was handled, and Taft became Roosevelt's Secretary of War and just a trusted advisor. He wanted him to be president after Roosevelt retired. And so in 1908, there were cartoons showing Teddy Roosevelt looking in a mirror and seeing an image in a Rough Rider uniform that didn't quite fit, as Taft was about over 300 pounds. But it was despite the jokes, or possibly because of that thinking, 
that Roosevelt was so close to Taft, Taft easily won the election and defeated the popular William Jennings Bryan in the 1908 election. The support of Roosevelt was the decisive factor. Recently, there were tensions between Bill Clinton and Al Gore in the 2000 election. Gore's campaign didn't quite use Clinton as the president would have liked. And Clinton leaked to the New York Times and other papers that he wasn't quite happy with Gore's campaign. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Jackson, Grant, Hayes, Roosevelt, Coolidge, and Reagan were the only presidents able to pass off the presidency to a member of their party. I'm not counting Franklin Pierce here because he didn't pass off the presidency. He was replaced by his party. So it's difficult to count him in the equations. Buchanan, Arthur, Cleveland, Wilson, Truman, Eisenhower, and Clinton, they were the presidents that failed to do this. In all of these successes, the incumbent president clearly supported the nominee in a non-equivocal way that was visible to the American public. In the failures, there was public and private tension, or private tension that became public. In the case of at least three of these failures... Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if... Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Arthur, Cleveland, and Wilson, the incumbent president, originally at least, wanted to have another term. And so tension was unavoidable. There's a clear lesson from this. To pass off the presidency to a member of the president's own party, The candidate need not be a vice president, though it helps, but must have the vigorous support of the incumbent president. Any tension between the incumbent president and the nominee will be picked up, will be magnified by the press and by the opposing campaign. If we look at the failures, Buchanan, Arthur, Cleveland, Wilson, Truman... Eisenhower in a second term, and Clinton, these were presidents that were running into a heap of trouble in their final terms. So the approval rating of the incumbent president, the popularity of the incumbent president, and the popularity of the actions that they're taking in their administration is going to be a factor on their ability to help that nominee. At least on the service, these would seem to be danger signs 
for Republicans facing a president with a low approval rating whose programs right now are not enjoying wide support among American voters and a nominee that might possibly, might possibly provide for some tension as there's going to be pressure for John McCain, for instance, to at least criticize part of the programs or move in a different direction from part of the programs of President Bush. Chapter 4, The Economy and the Election It is fairly common for buildings to be named after U.S. presidents, and normally it is supposed to be flattering and respectful, but not in the case of Hoovervilles or Cleveland cafes. Hoovervilles was a term given to shacks that would form on the outskirts of cities or railroad depots during the Great Depression. Cleveland cafes were the soup kitchens that developed during Grover Cleveland's second term in the White House, when the country was hit with a great panic that was the equivalent of the Great Depression. 500 bank failures, a 20% unemployment rate, 15,000 companies bankrupt, falling stock prices, a run on gold, and foreigners calling in American Treasury notes. Both these presidents, Hoover in the early 1930s, and Grover Cleveland in 1893 were saddled with a bad economy, and the next election in which their party would stand, they would give up the White House. In Cleveland's case, even the nomination would not be his. In Hoover's case, he achieved his nomination of his Republican Party only because no significant Republican wanted to run in a year in which they were certainly to be doomed. If voters do, as many pundits say, vote the pocketbook, the elections of 1896 and 1932, where the economy was bad and voters let the incumbent president and their party know it, that would seem to prove this rule. In Hoover's case, he suffered not only from the economy and from the passive approach he took to it. After all, Hoover believed in individualism and government non-interference in the economy. But he also was the target of a campaign of revenge from key Democrats, John Jacob Rasker and Chris Mickelson. They were some of Al Smith's lieutenants, and Al Smith, the happy warrior and the governor of New York, first Catholic candidate from a major party for the presidency, was defeated, at least partially, Mickelson and Rasker felt, due to bigotry. Mickelson and Rasker sought to use public relations techniques, Rumors, whispers to reporters and congressmen to capitalize on every bad mistake Hoover would make in his presidency. They started even before Hoover got into economic trouble. But when there was a stock market crash, they let reporters know that it should be called a Hoover panic. They invented the term Hoovervilles and named everything bad about Hoover. Even rabbits that some cases people were forced to eat were called Hoover hogs. The president was so associated with the bad economy that Hoover still conjures up image of depression today. And any American president cannot attempt, as Hoover did, to separate themselves from the economy. Since the 1930s, it's been assumed that the president sits with a lever controlling the economy, either in the form of some kind of stimulus or with control over interest rates or the federal budget. Still, 
This is an entirely new concept that the president was responsible for the economy. Martin Van Buren was called Martin Van Ruin in the election of 1840. Bank failures, drops in land prices, drops in prices for farm goods, unemployment among city laborers led to the Panic of 1837. This disaster had been preceded by a period of wild speculation between 1831 and 1834. As Van Buren's re-election approached, he hoped for a better economic result. But a second panic in 1839 did him in. As the Whig campaign song that blared through towns and cities said, Martin Van Buren is a worn-out man. It was not the first panic, or what in the 20th century would be called a recession, to grip the nation. Prior to the Constitution, the economy of the 1780s featured the inflation and misery that we would associate with today's recessions. It was the recovery from this recession which occurred right about the time that George Washington first took office and then was re-elected and Alexander Hamilton had set up an apparatus for paying off the country's war debts and created a banking system which put money into the economy It was that boom that increased confidence in the federal government. And there was a minor panic then in 1797, which had some impact on U.S. markets. In 1819, after the end of the Napoleonic Wars and the end on demand for banknotes for warring nations, and after the U.S. had built up spending from the War of 1812 and was now cycling down, President Monroe was willing to look at monetary solutions. He rejected calls for large public projects without amendment to the Constitution. Monroe did not suffer as the economy recouped, and he was re-elected in 1820 with no opponent. No one called it Monroe's panic at that time. And so Van Buren really became the first president to be forced out by the pocketbook vote. The campaign song Tippecanoe and Tyler Two, sung as a large medicine ball was rolled throughout the streets, singing Old Van Buren is a worn-out man. Seems to me so similar to the FDR's campaign in the 1930s playing Happy Days Are Here Again and every image of FDR showing his cigarette holder pointed upward and his smiling face. FDR's statements put the blame squarely on Hoover and indicted the federal government, said they needed to act. We are providing a drab living for our people, FDR said. Our task is the business of administering resources. Hoover attacked FDR's proposals, which he called socialistic. His treasury secretary attempted to scare eastern bankers about the consequences of a Franklin Roosevelt presidency. Hoover warned voters that the grass would grow in the streets of America if Roosevelt's policies were adopted. Hoover was not so unresponsive to the Depression as many think. He did create some government agencies to provide relief and increase credit. He instituted more public work spending than under any president prior. He called in CEOs and demanded that they preserve wages of American workers, something it would be hard to imagine a lot of prior presidents doing. But it wasn't enough. Americans wanted more and changed the government in 1933. But the person who created the expectations that the federal government might be the one to help in a crisis may have been Woodrow Wilson. To complete the mobilization needed for World War I, 
Wilson created new federal agencies and boards, the largest increase in the federal government ever. Members of these boards also ended up sitting on Hoover's boards and FDR's New Deal operations. While the World War I mobilization increased GNP and unemployment, after the armistice, it took time for the economy to shift back into peacetime mode. 25% of the labor force was working in a war-related industry, and at the armistice, those orders that could be canceled were canceled. The economy crashed about January 1920. Not convenient for Wilson's Democratic Party. The Democratic ticket did not feature Wilson in that year, but was associated by voters with the Wilson administration, lost big to Warren Harding and his promise of normalcy. And you hear that a lot in history, and people probably remember Warren Harding, uh, besides the Teapot Dome and besides dying in office. We remember him about his promise of normalcy in the election. And maybe you wonder what that what he was talking about, what that meant. Were we just talking about normalcy in life or that people would be more strict or moral, more moral? And it is a vague term, and it probably had something to do with that. But really what Warren Harding was addressing in the 1920 campaign was the fact that there were wild price increases and that there was an incredible mobilization of the federal government, uh, which had increased the economy. And then when it crashed, when the, when the armistice came, had uh, lowered the economy, and that normalcy was a way of calming some of this down. It was a very appealing to voters at the time. The economy would clearly be the reason for the elections of 1896, 1980, 1992, and would be a factor in 1952 and 1960. Despite Carter's attempt to make the election about Reagan being a warmonger, the combination of inflation and unemployment, known as stagflation, was too strong. Despite Bush Sr.'s attempt to attack Bill Clinton's character, and despite the Democrats dumping, and despite the Democrats of 1896 dumping and disassociating with their incumbent president, Grover Cleveland, and going with the silver Democrat, William Jennings Bryan, the parties in this year faced the pocketbook vote. I didn't want to hear any other argument or any other issue. Pocketbook voting is seen in the midterms as well. Republicans lost the House after the Panic of 1874, and after the 1957 slowdown, Eisenhower's Republicans lost 48 seats. Democrats gained 52 House seats in 1930 and picked up more in special elections during 1931, as voters expressed their increasing displeasure with the handling of the economy. Roosevelt lost seats in 1937 after the economy slowed down from the initial New Deal recovery, something that was called then the Roosevelt Recession. And in a quick 1981-1982 recession, Reagan's Republicans lost 27 House seats. Still, economic woes are not needed for a president to lose the House. Other issues matter. In 1910, corrupt patronage and the blocking of progressive reforms lost Republicans the House, despite a decent economy. In 1882, the issue was civil service reform. In 1974, it was Watergate. In 1914, it was disillusionment with the administration. These elections were held in relatively good economic times. A good economy is no guarantee for an incumbent president when running or, or his party. 
the U.S. economy was booming out of a brief 1974 recession in 1976. It's 200th year as a nation. But it did not help Gerald Ford. Nixon beat the incumbent Democrats in a time of rising GNP in 1968, when crime in Vietnam seemed more important than that. Harrison, Benjamin Harrison, beat Grover Cleveland in 1888 during a strong economy, and Cleveland captured the White House back during good economic times as well. William Howard Taft presided over a strong U.S. economy in 1912, but with a divided party and a challenge from Teddy Roosevelt, progressive voters split, and he lost the White House. In 1860, The looming Civil War and the debate about slavery mattered more than the economy. Most recently, Al Gore was not helped by the booming 90s economy in 2000, and he received an anemic mandate despite wide popularity of the administration's performance and the economy. Gore would win just a narrow popular vote margin and not enough to put him in the White House. At the same time, A recovery from the 0102 recession no doubt helped George W. Bush win win a narrow re-election. So do voters vote the pocketbook? It appears that they do on the extreme. The economy is in recession in the election year, as it was in 1920, 1980, 1992. Or, if it was in a bad state before such things as recessions were measured, such as 1840 and 1896. The historical odds here are zero. Recession in the election year means loss. If it's a boom, as in 24, 64, 28, 96, it can be of help if no other negatives are present. But it's not 100%, as in 1976 or 1912. And if the economy is iffy, well, the effect could be iffy as well. You might shake it out as Wilson did in his re-election of 1960. Or you might lose, as Democrats did in 1952, and Republicans did in 1960, when the economic trouble was just a minor, just a point or two loss in GNP. Pundits pay a lot of attention to the economy, as they should. But it's not the be-all and end-all. While interesting economic times seem to be ahead, we also have troops in Iraq, and immigration and other questions will loom in this election. Chapter 5. Swapping Horses Win the war quicker with Dewey and Bricker has to be among the strangest slogans in American politics, one that trivialized the great American sacrifice of World War II. Yet we can understand the situation that Thomas E. Dewey, or any candidate facing an incumbent presidency in a time of war, is in. Dewey, as the governor of New York, had a reputation for crime-fighting. And another good asset running up against Franklin Roosevelt, Dewey was good on radio. His diction and performance was almost as good as FDR's. He was so polished, it was joked that he looked like the groom in a wedding cake. But with the country at war, Dewey and the conservative governor of Ohio, John W. Bricker, could do little except call the administration a group of tired old men attack corruption, and say they could fight the war more efficiently. But when he called members of the administration tired old men, Senator Robert from Oklahoma fired back the Nimitz, Marshall, and MacArthur 
as well, all as old as Franklin Roosevelt, were winning the war. And could Dewey say that they were tired old men? Dewey also tried to use the issue of Pearl Harbor, the issue of if the army should have known that an attack was coming. But George Marshall pleaded with Dewey not to use this. All of this points to the difficulty of running a campaign, which always involves criticizing your opponent in a time of war. In Dewey's case, the complications were too much, and Franklin Roosevelt carried 32 states and won by 3.5 million votes. Perhaps Lincoln had predicted this 80 years earlier, when a group of Republicans led by Governor Dennison of Ohio brought Abraham Lincoln news of his renomination as the Republican candidate, Republican Union candidate, in 1864. He answered with the following statement, printed in newspapers around the country. I have not permitted myself, gentlemen, to conclude that I am the best man, but I am reminded in this connection of an old Dutch farmer who remarked that it was best not to swap horses while crossing streams. As the New York Times said, the laughter that accompanied the remark should have been heard. It was tumultuous. But was this really an off-the-cuff remark that Lincoln made? That's unlikely. Lincoln was aware of the nomination. He was aware a group was coming. It was a formality, and he made prepared remarks. It must be remembered that these remarks were not, as some might remember it, an explanation for his election in November because that certainly wasn't clear at the time he made the remarks. It was a statement about his nomination going into the election. So this was not just a statement of fact. This was a statement of what Lincoln hoped voters would think. It was, in effect, a little campaign commercial, and a very fitting one. But since then, Lincoln's concept of not swapping horses has lived on in American political folklore. It certainly worked for Lincoln. Despite nominating General McClellan, who had been commander of all Union forces, the Democrats were unable to answer charges of a lack of patriotism. And with progress in the war going a little bit better in the election year of 1864, Lincoln easily won. The first election during a war was not as it's sometimes asserted during the Civil War, but actually during the War of 1812. 1812 was an election year. And the Federalists, the Peace Party of that time, supported DeWitt Clinton, the mayor of New York, although they did not nominate him directly. DeWitt Clinton sought to unseat President Madison, a Republican. He thought his chances were pretty good. Republicans were discontented with Madison, and the Federalists, the opposition party of the time, were eager to back a candidate who could win for them after 12 years of being out of power. Clinton and peace became the cry of, of the Federalists. But in the South, where the war against Britain was far more popular, Clinton simply promised to prosecute the war better and prosecute the war quicker. This we've seen repeated with so many candidates during a time of war, everyone from McClellan to Dewey to John Kerry who struggled between commitment to the Iraq war and finding a way out. We are going to win better, faster, more efficiently, was Kerry, DeWitt Clinton's, McClellan's, and Dewey's promise. Though at the same time, all of them wished to gain the support of strictly anti-war voters. 
So there does appear to be a tendency not to swap horses in American politics, not to trade one president for another during a time that troops are the ground. But what when the incumbent isn't running? It has happened, uh, not in a major war, but during the Korean War and during Vietnam in the 1952 and 1968 elections, that while the incumbent president wasn't defeated, the party in power lost the White House. Democrats lost the White House while troops were still on the ground. In addition, Democrats lost the White House just shortly after the end of World War I, and Bush Sr. lost the White House a year after troops had been on the ground in the Gulf War. Midterms can also go against an incumbent during a time of war. Franklin Roosevelt lost in 1942, Lincoln in 1862, Polk in 1846, and Wilson in 1918, all while hostilities were active. If voters will not swap horses, they certainly can swap Congresses. Also, of these presidential elections during a time before 1864 and 2004 were very close, razor-thin elections for the incumbent. John Kerry won 48% of the vote during a time of war, and McClellan came McClellan certainly came close to victory. So close that Lincoln would write a memo to his staff, it's probable that this administration will not be reelected. If it's really true that voters do not want to swap horses, as the old Dutch farmer said, why in these elections do so many of them choose to do so? And why are presidents saved from a machine in the sky by such a few a small amount of voters? The results seem to be that in a performing, a poorly performing war, just like any other policy issue Americans are upset about, they will change the administration. Americans will swap horses, and they'll certainly swap parties as they did in 68 or 52. I think this is one of those historical questions that suffers from a lack of examples. After all, Lyndon Johnson decided not to run for a second term in 68. Truman decided not to run for a second term of his own in 52. Therefore, we were denied two possible examples of incumbent presidents running for re-election in a time of war that might have changed the equation. I think there's more there that meets the eyes, though we don't have an example yet of an incumbent president losing. We do have the party defeats of 68 and 52. If Americans will not choose swap horses, they may at least swap parties. Chapter 6, The Home State of Candidates The election of 1888 was all about the home states of the candidates. On one hand, Republicans chose General Benjamin Harrison, grandson of the former president and a governor of Indiana. Indiana was a swing state between Republicans and Democrats from the time of the Civil War really into the early 20th century. And in this year, Benjamin Harrison was likely to bring it in for Republicans. On the other side, incumbent Grover Cleveland was from the formidable Electoral College state of New York. For most of the 19th century, New York was a make-or-break state, had nearly 45 electoral votes. It was the California of today. Win it and a few others and win the election. Especially since he enjoyed the support of the Solid South, Cleveland's home state would make him formidable in the 1884 election. 
and he had been elected mayor of Buffalo and governor of New York by wide margins, and he was attractive to both Democrats and independents for his honestness. He had stood up to Tammany Hall, the machine of New York City, and its bosses. But ironically, in his first election of 1884, the Tammany Hall bosses would back Cleveland, thinking that once he got in, he would then reward them with patronage. When, surprise, surprise, Cleveland did nothing of the sort, and in fact acted as a very conservative president, not awarding a lot of patronage to anyone, they did not organize as strongly for him in his re-election attempt. The Republicans were organized. Led by Matthew Quay of Pennsylvania, they were eager to take back the White House that had been theirs since before the Civil War. Quay targeted Republicans in pockets of New York, one of the first micro-targeted races. And he hired a census of families in the city so that Tammany Hall could not lie about the vote count. When the votes were cast in 1888, Benjamin Harrison won his home state of Indiana and Cleveland lost his home state of New York and the White House. The irony to all of this is that in four years, with Harrison saddled by an unpopular tariff, having lost the support of his main organizer, Matthew Quay, and with Cleveland being the 19th century comeback kid, winning the unanimous support of the Democratic Party, he would win the White House back by winning, now in 1892, his home state back by a comfortable margin. And in that election, Harrison would now lose his home state of Indiana and the presidency. The home state of a candidate is a factor and has been in elections throughout history. Though there was a stronger regional impulse, certainly, to politics in the 19th century. You didn't have TV and radio and instant communications. Still, even in the late 20th century... We saw that a candidate like Bill Clinton benefited from his ability to bring the state of Arkansas into the Democratic column after it had voted for Reagan and Bush, and to also carry along the bordering states of Louisiana and Missouri. Before that, one could see Jimmy Carter sort of relying on his home base of the South to fight off what became an increasingly strong challenge from President Ford in the waning days of the 1976 election. You know, Carter had started out 20 points ahead, and as Ford started to fight back, he made big gains, particularly in the northern states and in California. Without his home area, Carter would have lost. I believe the home state factor in American presidential elections is a factor, mostly because of that compromise invention of the Constitutional Convention, the Electoral College. And I suppose the later decision by most states to go to a winner-take-all system awarding of Electoral College votes. If it were just a popular vote, it may not mean as much that a politician could pull in a big area or significant city within a state. I mean, that would just be added to their popular vote total. But if a person is popular within a state, even in just one area, and that can turn the state vote to them, they'll get all of that state's electoral college vote. There's a favorite son factor, after all. It's kind of neat to have the guy who was your mayor, governor, senator, the name that you've heard locally for all these years, now in the White House as president. It can certainly be a factor. And since the Electoral College is sort of a magnifier of state influence, if you're popular even in one area of the state, winner takes all means you have the chance to turn that to the Electoral College votes of an entire state. And any advantage, including favorite son advantage, becomes more important than it might seem. 
And if the election is close, like the elections of 1800, 1824, or 2004, one state can be critical. The home state factor is one thing that a lot of professionals in politics look at in considering a candidate. I think it's one of the reasons when you see a guy like Joe Biden, who's run for president you know, three times now, never really get any traction. Three electoral college votes of, of Delaware. But while it's nice for people to have their home state guy in office, it doesn't always work. Starting with Charles Coatsworth Pickney, who lost his home state of South Carolina in 1804 to Thomas Jefferson, who was then incumbent president. Nineteen candidates have lost their home state. Alf Landon lost Kansas, where he'd been governor of the popular tidal wave of FDR in 1936. In the 70s, George McGovern lost South Dakota and most of the rest of the country to Richard Nixon in 1972. Adelaide Stevenson lost his home state of Illinois to Eisenhower. The popular president, it seems, will still trump a favorite son challenger in their home state, as was the case in 1940 and 1944 when Franklin Roosevelt beat back New York-based challengers Wilkie and Dewey in the state of New York and the nation. An unpopular president, though, can't always count on his home state, as Cleveland found out in his first term, and as Martin Van Buren found out when he became the first incumbent president to lose his home state and the presidency to the better-organized Whig campaign of William Henry Harrison. So while home state's a factor, it's not everything. Maybe in Van Buren's case, after all, he had been vice president and then president for a term. Maybe after years of being out of the state and being down in Washington, the home state effect wears off somewhat. That seemed to be the case in the 2000 election, when Al Gore's campaign rode off Tennessee early in the cycle. He ended up losing that state by four percentage points. For Republicans, it seemed to be an argument that Al Gore deserved to lose the election. After all, he couldn't win his home state. But after eight years as vice president, he really hadn't been operating in the state of Tennessee for some time. With John Edwards currently in the race, some look at North Carolina and question why Edwards couldn't carry his state as the vice presidential candidate in the 2004 election. It's not a fair question, in my opinion, because he wasn't at the top of the ticket and no Kerry Edwards resources were spent in North Carolina. If Edwards had been nominated top of the ticket in 2004, you would have seen an amazing amount of money spent in North Carolina. It would have been quite a battle. The home state of a candidate may be a factor in 2008, depending on who is nominated. Both Hillary Clinton and Rudy Giuliani hail from New York. John Edwards, North Carolina, has been targeted slowly but surely by Democrats and has a Democratic governor. Mitt Romney may make a play for Massachusetts, where he was governor, if he's nominated on the Republican side. I might even throw in that John McCain holds Republican Arizona, a state that Democrats have been targeting, and Bill Richardson probably holds for the Democrats New Mexico, a state that has been kind of back and forth in recent years between Republicans and Democrats. In today's polarized politics, where one state can make a difference, the home state factor is alive and well. Winning your home state is a crucial factor. But can you be president and lose your home state? The answer is yes, but. Two presidents, James Polk, who lost his home state of Tennessee to superior organizing by the Whig Party by just a few hundred votes, yet won the election. And Woodrow Wilson, who was re-elected in 1916 
beating Supreme Court Justice Charles Evan Hughes in the election, but losing his home state of New Jersey. I'll make a quick note that some textbooks will indicate that Richard Nixon, who in 1968 technically had residence in New York, won the presidency while losing New York. But it's really difficult to count that as his home state. He had not been elected there and had no base of support there. California was his true home state. Okay, so it's Polk and Wilson. However, both those elections of 1844 and 1916 were razor-close ones. Had Polk not carried New York, had Wilson not carried California, each by a few thousand votes, neither would have won. So it's not much a record to go on. And it does say that normally you have to win your home state, but it does make the case that had he prevailed in Florida, Al Gore would not have been the only person to win the presidency and lose his home state. A final word about home states. I think there's a tendency with people spread all over the nation, with instant communication, and with transplants you know, everywhere, to, to think that the home state factor doesn't matter anymore. In my opinion... It's a mistake. The home state of the candidate will be a factor so long as there is an electoral college. Politics are still, to some degree, local. And the names on lawn signs and local commercials are different in states across the nation. It's a factor, among many other factors, that parties simply should be considering, should not be leaving on the table. For example, in 2004, consideration of the candidate on the Democrat side who might have had more pull in the red states, such as Gephardt or Edwards or Bob Graham, might have been considered more. In the vice presidential selection of 2004, the Kerry campaign may have taken a better look at who was more likely to carry their home state. Would Gephardt be more likely to pull in Missouri, having been elected so many times there and being such a name in the state? Would Bob Graham had a better chance of carrying Florida? It did turn up being somewhat close, considering it wasn't the focus of the campaign in 2004 that it had been in 2000. Home state remains a factor, even in today's 21st century politics. Chapter 7. The Effect of Negative Advertising I have been vilified in such exaggerated and indecent terms as could scarcely be applied to a Nero, a notorious defaulter, or a common pickpocket. That wasn't a candidate today complaining about a barrage of negative TV ads or being swift-boated by an organization. That was George Washington complaining about the politics of his day. According to the newspapers of that era, Washington had debauched the nation. John Adams was liable to gusts of passion little short of frenzy. Jefferson was an atheist, a Jacobin, and a demagogue. Hamilton was an adulterer and corrupt. So when, 200 years after the first presidential election, there were images of a Boston harbor flooded with garbage, it should have not been a shock, nor should we have been shocked by the images of Willie Horton the Massachusetts parolee rapist who was linked to Governor Mike Dukakis's governorship. Even though most of American states, 41 states, including states that would vote resoundingly for Bush in the election of 1988, had similar home leave programs to the Massachusetts one. Nor did it matter that the program was started under a Republican governor in Massachusetts, and it didn't matter that similar Incidents with parolees had occurred 
under federal programs under the Reagan and Bush administration. The Bush campaign didn't directly run ads that involved an image of Willie Horton. They claimed their ads were solely about the crime issue and did not show an image of Horton or reveal his race. But a committee called Americans for Bush, a right-wing committee, not directly connected to the Bush campaign, produced its own commercial with Horton's image over the words kidnapping, stabbing, and raping. While the Bush campaign didn't directly produce the ad, this committee did give the Bush campaign an option before it put the ad on for 28 days to withdraw the ad whenever the Bush campaign wanted. On the 25th day, three days before the ad was due to go off the air anyway, Jim Baker wrote a letter asking them to withdraw the ad. The damage had been done. Later in the election year, another Bush ad claimed that 268 prisoners escaped from Dukakis's furlough program and many were still at large. It was not necessary for the ad to explain that the 268 escapees had occurred over 10 years. Just three of these 268 were actually AOL, and one-third to one-half of them had merely come in late on the day that they were due. The Bush media consultant, Roger Ailes, felt that people never focused on the positive ads that he did during the campaign, and that the media played along with it. When positive ads were done, the campaign experimented for four days with nothing but positive campaigns. They got no coverage on the news. The campaigns worked. Dukakis's negative ratings, the amount of people who had a negative feeling about him, increased 10 points between the summer and the fall of 1988. And not only that, George Bush's ratings were lowered from the 40s to the 30s. As Ailes said, he had succeeded in making George Bush look better by making Michael Dukakis look worse. But for many people, the 1988 election was the lowest point of American politics in terms of negative campaigning. Four years later, an interesting thing occurred. Republicans, having had so much success attacking the problems with Boston Harbor under Mike Dukakis's administration, tried to use ads against Bill Clinton and about pollution in the Arkansas River. But while Americans didn't realize there were problems with the Boston Harbor, which would seem to be an elegant harbor, it was not as surprising to see that a river in, in a poor southern state might not be up to par. And the ads had very little effect. Ads calling Clinton the governor of a failed state didn't seem to have as much effect either, because the perception of Arkansas was low in many voters' minds. And the fact that there was a governor improving it at all was a positive step. On top of all this, Clinton's campaign in 92 had a war room, which was answering any charge made by the Republicans within the same news cycle. But did Dukakis ask for it because of his blandness, because of his, the vagueness of his campaign message, because he was standing for nothing? does appear that when America does not know you, your opponents can define you. Grover Cleveland was not incredibly well-known in 1884. Just two years earlier, he had been mayor of Buffalo. So when Republicans dug up the fact that he had fathered an illegitimate child, Republicans had a field day with this information. And they shouted, and flyers and ads appeared that showed a young child that said, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? Democrats, running against the Republican James Blaine, brought up old campaign charges that Blame had answered but never quite got rid of. Charles Evan Hughes, the bland Republican nominee of 1916, 
the only person pulled off the Supreme Court to run for president, took a wavering position on the European war that, that was then going on and said little. It was easy, therefore, for Democrats to link him to Theodore Roosevelt, who was going around the country making speeches on Hughes' behalf and talking about that America needed to be more aggressive about the European war. So without Hughes taking a position on that war, by accepting Roosevelt's support, Democrats were able to label him as a warmonger. Democrats said the choice was between Wilson and peace and Roosevelt and war. Negative ads are not always print or radio or TV. When Democrats tried futilely to upset Cal Coolidge in 1924, the one issue that they had was the Teapot Dome scandal. And this was a scandal that involved the improper use of federal lands uh, by the Harding administration. But Coolidge was part of that administration. Teapot hangers were hung on Democratic doors throughout the country, reminding people of the scandal. Herbert Hoover, when running against Al Smith in 28, had buttons that said, A Christian in the White House, a swipe at the Catholic Smith, and of course, conveniently forgetting that Catholics are indeed Christians. In 2004, Republican groups distributed flip-flops and pink buttons that said, Gays for Kerry and Edwards, which were released only in the most conservative congressional districts. Republicans in 1940 distributed buttons that said, we don't want Eleanor either, and no man is good three times, referring to Franklin Roosevelt. In 1904, Southern Democrats distributed buttons showing Theodore Roosevelt dining in the White House with a black man, Booker T. Washington. And in 1896, and this was a common occurrence in many elections, railroad managers put notes into employees' paychecks that threatened the loss of their job if Bryan was elected. Negative ads are not new in American history, and they won't go away anytime soon. They are limited only by the chance of backfire to the attacker. The same calculation that Roger Ailes was making with George Bush Sr.'s positive and negative calculations are the same type of calculations that Thomas Jefferson would make in not wanting to be seen as the author of certain negative attacks on his opponents, or Charles Evan Hughes would make, or Wilson would make, in not wanting to directly call his opponent a warmonger. Negative attacks in the past and now are limited only by that chance of backfire to the one who issues it. And Americans have a large tolerance for negative ads. They will certainly be a factor in the 2008 election. But will they be decisive? In the campaigns of 1992, where candidate Bill Clinton, very much with an eye on what happened to Michael Dukakis, in fact, during the 1988 campaign, Clinton had telephoned Dukakis and pleaded with him to respond to the negative attacks. Dukakis insisted they wouldn't stick. Bill Clinton learned his lesson, assembled a war room, and answered every attack. As John Kerry, Michael Dukakis, and others have found out, Negative attacks work best when they are unanswered. Democrats in 1884, eager to get the White House, and with their candidate besieged by the allegations of having fathered an illegitimate child, kept the pressure on Republican opponent James Blaine for his perceived corruption. After the election, reminding Republicans of what they had said on that flyer, Democrats said, Ma, ma, where's my pa? And answered, gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. Chapter 8, A Two-Year Ditch in American Politics, 
presidential elections after a party has lost the House of Representatives. Adelaide Stevenson, the brainy governor of Illinois, who both in 1952 and 1956 had the tough challenge of running for president against the popular Dwight Eisenhower, liked to tell a story that seemed to sum up his long-shot chances in both elections. Stevenson listened to a farmer complain about President Eisenhower's farm policy. Alas, he thought, there might be a voter here. But when Stevenson asked why people weren't mad at Eisenhower, the farmer replied, Oh, him? Well, no one connects him with the administration. Stevenson told the story to his friends and associates to show how hard it was campaigning against a popular general. Stevenson had a few issues in the 1956 election. The economy, Eisenhower's inaction to help Hungary during its attempted revolt against the Soviet Union, even the Suez Crisis, which Stevenson felt was bungled. But nothing stuck to Ike. The frustration felt by Adelaide Stevenson was no doubt shared by another candidate years later, Bob Dole, in 1996. Running against a president in a time of peace and with a booming economy, Dole began the year with a deficit in the polls that he was never able to erase. Where's the outrage, he muttered, half a campaign slogan and half an expression of frustration that there was very little to criticize with Bill Clinton's success in besting the Congress and the booming economy in 90s America. With some perspective, it might be reassuring to these folks that they were not facing the usual presidents. They were facing highly unusual presidents. Both Eisenhower and Clinton had done something unusual. They had lost the House to the opposition party, something that would appear to be the rejection of their presidencies, and then went on two years later to win the presidency. If running against a popular incumbent seems tough, the situation Chester Arthur was in leading a divided party was even tougher, having taken back the House in 1880 with the election of James Garfield. His Republicans had lost the House just two years later in 1882. A party divided between the mugwumps or liberal Republicans who would rather support a Democrat than see a Republican from the other faction, the stalwarts, win, put Republicans in a weakened position. The Democrats were certain to run Grover Cleveland, the popular governor of New York, and without New York, and with no hopes of any state south of the Mason-Dixon line going Republican, they stood to lose. Arthur was unable to obtain a nomination, a nomination for which he did nothing to get and wasn't even sure if he'd accept, if given, because of his ill health. In the end, Republicans swapped out Arthur and decided on James Blaine, a respected former Speaker of the House. But they failed to beat Grover Cleveland in that election of 1884. And in the twilight of James Knox Polk's presidency, his Democratic Party struggled to recover from the beating they took from the Whigs in the 1846 congressional midterm elections. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For president in 1848, they selected Lewis Cass, a senator from Michigan. Cass was a compromise candidate for the Democrats, did not take a position on slavery, which was dividing the party at the time, but he proposed legislation that squatters in the western states could decide the issue for themselves. But no compromiser was going to help the Democrats in 1848. At that point, the most important state for the Democrats, New York, was divided between the hunkers and the barn burners. Hunkers were slavery supporters who hunkered for office, they said. Barn burners were were called that because it was said they would rather burn the barn down to kill the rats. In other words, they were willing to dismantle the party as long as it meant an end to slavery. In the 1848 election, many of these barn burners supported Whigs, or the Free Soil candidate, former President Van Buren, and the election went to the Whigs of Zachary Taylor. Arthur and James Polk are examples of presidents who lost the House and two years later were not able to hand over the keys of the White House to the opposing party. If the six-year itch omen is well known, that is the now well-established political trend that a president loses seats in the sixth year of his presidency, with only Clinton in 98 as an exception over the entire history of the American presidency. This particular omen, that is that when the House is lost, a president may be in trouble, is not thought of as much. And if that trend to kick out a two-term presidential incumbent's party in Congress is known as the six-year itch, this might be known as the two-year ditch. Two years after losing the House, the president or his party, more often than not, loses the presidential election. Losing enough seats to cause a loss of the House would seem to be a strong indicator that the president's party is in trouble. Only three presidents, Truman, Clinton, and Eisenhower, were able to survive the loss of the House to be re-elected president two years later. These are incumbents, but in a more fitting example to today's politics, only two presidents hand the keys of the White House over to another person in their own party after losing the House, Washington and Grant. Washington was able to secure the White House for his friend and Federalist John Adams, despite the House being taken over by the new Jeffersonian Republican parties in the sixth year of Washington's presidency, 1794. Ulysses S. Grant was able to pass the White House to the Republican governor of Ohio, Rutherford B. Hayes. But both of these examples of presidents after losing the House, passing the White House to a member of their own party, have serious caveats. George Washington didn't technically have a party. He disliked parties and would not have considered himself a Federalist. In fact, his successor, John Adams, also shared this belief. He considered himself and his administration nonpartisan in the matter of Lincoln. And although commonly referred to as a Federalist, he had a dislike for what he considered to be Alexander Hamilton's party. And to look at the other example, Grant did see a Republican, rather it be Hayes, follow him. But that's only after his party lost the counted popular vote and won as a result of protracted dispute by electoral commission. But if we ignore these caveats and count these examples, it means that just five presidents have been able to keep the White House or hand the keys over to the same party two years after losing the House. 
and the exceptions don't provide much hope for the GOP in the current situation. Bush is not running as an incumbent in 2008, which eliminates three of the five examples. Let's look at the numbers. The House has been lost by presidents 13 times, 1796, 1842, 1846, 1874, 1882, 1890, 1894, 1910, 1930, 1946, 1954, 1994, and now 2006. And I want to be careful how I define a loss of the House. I define loss of the House as the president's party was in control after an election, is no longer in control, and the opposing party is in control. There's a reason for the strict definition, which I'll get into a little bit later. So presidents have prevailed in at least in getting themselves or their own party elected to the White House in five out of 13 cases. So about 38% of presidents who lost the House were able to pass on the presidency through their own party. And one might say, well, 38% is more than a third. It's not great, but it's not impossible either. And it certainly does seem to make this trend not as strong as some other trends in politics. We also have to consider that part of the reason that there are less instances of the loss of the House is that some presidents came into office with the opposite party already in control. Among those, John Quincy Adams, Gerald Ford, George Bush Sr., all three of whom were not able to pass the White House to their own party after their presidencies. Now let's look at 1854. I need to define the loss of the House in the way I do because of 1854, and it may be a point of controversy with some. I am not including the 1854 election in which after the Kansas-Nebraska bill, now this is the bill that opened up slavery into the territories, and when there would be a revolt against Democrats, particularly in the North, and a new party, the Republican Party, would form from Whigs and Northern Democrats. Democrat President Franklin Pierce would see many of his Democrats lose, and a new Republican Party take as many as 46 seats from Democrats. Certainly, it was a thumping for Pierce. And technically, Pierce's Democrats became the minority party in Congress in 1854. But I will argue that they still held a plurality of Congress, 84 seats as compared to 62 for the Americans or know-nothings, 60 declared Whigs, and 46 of the new Republicans. As a sign of how divided this new Congress was, it took almost six months to pick a speaker. And during that time, a Democratic speaker remained in control. The balance of the power in this Congress was held by a third party, the know-nothings, or the American party. And they were the ones that ended up picking the new speaker. And some of these Americans or know-nothings sided with Pierce on policy, meaning that Franklin Pierce still had a reasonable amount of control over the new House in the last two years of his presidency. And in the divided House that he faced, the weakened House, with a protracted battle for Speaker, he certainly didn't face the same opponent that George W. Bush does now in the 2006 Democrats or, or Clinton did in 1995. We have a correlation between a president losing the House of Representatives and two years later his party or him losing the presidential election. But do we have causation? Well, that's a question. Does the loss of the House cause the party to lose the election? We can speculate that there is certainly a loss of agenda. You know, Americans tend to want to see the president as a person of action, uh, the bully pulpit, 
leading the agenda. When you have a house that's controlled by the opposition party, the first thing that happens is you lose the news story. As the House can propose legislation, the House is driving the agenda, sending bills at the president to sign or veto. These are all speculations, though, and the only thing we do know is that there's correlation. This is an omen. You lose the House, you're going to tend to lose the presidency. Now, let's take the other side to this idea of a a two-year ditch. Uh, There are only so many instances of a loss of the House in a presidency, so maybe we're just dealing with a small sample size. And there are exceptions. As much as they can be explained away in some cases, they are exceptions. So while the trend of an incumbent in his sixth year losing seats in the House has only one exception in the entire 218 years of the American presidency, There are several exceptions to the two-year trend, no matter how many caveats there are for all those exceptions. But while it's not a perfect tool, it is a useful tool. And there are too many instances of presidents who lose the House then not winning the presidency for their party to ignore it. But taking it out of the idea of a general trend and now applying it only to 2008, we can say that even if the two-year ditch is not a perfect trend, even if it will not always work in every election that where a president has lost a house, they will go on to lose the next election or their party will. Consider it added to other factors in 2008, which together seem to present a lot of burdens for the GOP. This is also election year, which the the GOP is saddled with an unpopular war and the burden of an incumbent whose poll ratings will not be helpful to a GOP nominee. If Clinton was able to use his poll numbers to win a showdown with Congress, if Truman was able to use support for his foreign policy to win a second term, the 2008 GOP nominee, whether it's Romney, Giuliani, or McCain, or someone else, will have none of those advantages. Think of these as additional indicators, which in addition to the two-year ditch being sort of a potential indicator, there's all these normal indicators that seem to be in the Democrats' favor. If there is such a two-year ditch in politics, that is if Americans favor ditching the incumbent party two years after the midterms in which they elect the opposing Congress, then it may be the case that the GOP can't win in 2008, or at least it's so highly improbable that the battle to succeed Bush and the Republican primary is a fool's errand. The other consequence of this is that it could mean that the real action for 2008 is in the Democratic primary. Chapter 8. Party Disunity In the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, with the TV cameras rolling, Connecticut Senator Abe Ripikoff took the stage. He criticized the rough handling of protesters who were surrounding the convention hall protesting the Vietnam War. He criticized Mayor Richard Daley's police forces, so-called Gestapo tactics. Cameras then turned to Mayor Daley, who was sitting in the convention floor. He shouted something back at Senator Ripikoff. Though no microphone was present to capture the mayor's sound, lip readers, looking at the tape later, figured out that the mayor had shouted back an expletive which would be best summed up by the letters F.U. This was, needless to say, pretty far from party unity. By the time Hubert Humphrey took the stage and made a speech, 
a speech that contained nothing that the protesters outside wanted and little what the delegates inside cared about. He was upstaged by the raucous convention. Four years later, the Democratic Party hadn't learned all that much. While there were no protesters in the streets of Miami Beach, and it was, after all, helpful to have the convention on an island, they did battle over the seating of delegates between the established Democratic Party bosses and the McGovernites, who wished to take over the nomination that year. And when McGovern won his battle and the nomination and prepared an excellent speech called Come Home America, criticizing the Vietnam War and calling for social change, the speech was made at 2 a.m., which then, as now, was not prime time for American television viewers. In addition, the McGovernites had spent so much time battling over the seating of delegates that they hadn't vetted their vice presidential candidates well enough and ended up picking a flawed candidate, Senator Thomas Eagleton of Missouri, who had to quit the race when it was revealed that he had had electroshock therapy for nervous exhaustion. McGovern would be defeated in one of the biggest landslides in American history. No doubt about it, the Democratic primary in 2008 was an amazing battle involving a former president and first lady, an insurgent Democratic candidate of acknowledged charisma, the Kennedy family, the DNC chair and the speaker, though trying to stay neutral, but getting involved in some ways. Not since 1984, when Gary Hart battled Walter Mondale, has a race on the Democratic side been this close, and even that was largely settled by the intervention of Ted Kennedy set up talks between Hart and Mondale, then prior to the talks, endorsed Mondale, which gave him a big boost and effectively ended the conflict. As an early supporter of Senator Barack Obama in 2008, Kennedy could not play the broker role this year. No gesture, or to be more accurate, no non-gesture, was as watched as Ted Kennedy's in the Democratic Convention of 1980, when he joined Jimmy Carter on the stage and patted him on the back. The lack of the traditional gesture of victory, that of clasping the victor's hand and raising it in the air, united, was obvious. Turnout among the kind of liberal voters that would have supported Ted Kennedy was way down in the 1980 general election. Jewish voters, for instance, who normally supported the Democrat, supported Ted Kennedy in huge numbers in the Democratic primary, had their lowest Democratic vote in memory in the 1980 general election. Besieged by economic problems and with American hostages in Iran, Carter would lose the 1980 general election. He was helped in that loss by a large group of so-called Reagan Democrats, self-identified Democrats who decided on the presidential vote to vote for Ronald Reagan. Extreme disunity in the Democratic Party between the Bourbon Democrats and Silver Democrats helped Republicans William McKinley and Garrett Hobart win the White House in 1896. Though economic conditions and tariff issues were factors as well. Ronald Reagan's run against Gerald Ford in 1976 no doubt hurt his bid for re-election. The 1924 disaster of a Democratic convention led to the nomination of John W. Davis, who was no threat at all to Calvin Coolidge, though it's not clear who would have been that year. But the most definitive example of party disunity, of course, is 1912, 
While in 1968, Hubert Humphrey was hurt by disunity, he was also hurt by an unpopular war and a president with low approval ratings. In 1896, Bryan was hurt by disunity. He was also hurt by economic conditions. Carter in 1980 was also hurt by economic conditions and foreign policy. 1912 was a different situation. This was an election that by so many other factors, the economy was good. It was a time of peace in America. This should have been the Republicans to win. But because of a personal feud between the former President Roosevelt and the man he had left the presidency to, William Howard Taft, Woodrow Wilson was able to win a minority of the vote and win the election. Together, Taft and Roosevelt's combined votes would have been enough to beat Wilson. But with his enemies divided, Wilson needed only to hold the Democratic South and the Bryanite West and pick up New York, New Jersey, and a few other states. The election was his. Of course, Abraham Lincoln was a creature of party disunity as well. With the strong Democratic organization, which had been dominant, if not unbeatable, in American politics since Andrew Jackson, was split in two pieces, and a strong third party, really a fourth party, of border state Whigs allowed Lincoln to win in a four-way election and hold the northern vote and win the election without a popular vote majority. Party unity was not so strong when parties started either. In the first contested election of 1796, Hamilton made secret arrangements with the electors of his budding Federalist Party to support candidates other than Adams, with the hope that Adams would be elected vice president instead of president. In those days, of course, all the candidates ran, whether they wanted to be vice president or president. They all ran in the same race, in effect. And the person who got the second highest vote total would be declared the vice president. This made the dynamics, especially given the parties at the time, very interesting. It only lasted two elections, and of course it led to problems. In 1796, Hamilton's actions meant that, while Adams was still elected president, just enough Federalist electors had declined to vote for Adams that Jefferson became vice president instead of the intended Federalist candidate. In 1800, Hamilton supported Southern Federalist Charles Pickney and almost had him elected over Adams. That same year, Republicans voted in equal numbers for Jefferson and Aaron Burr. Burr, instead of deferring to Jefferson, said nothing and allowed intrigues to continue with some Federalists considering supporting Burr just in, uh, just in order to stop Jefferson. Party unity is not an absolute factor. In 1872, Republicans began to defect from the main Republican Party when they were unhappy with the Grant administration. Called liberal Republicans, they were going to nominate David Davis or Samuel Chase, but led by newspapers ended up nominating Horace Greeley, the fiery editor of the New York Tribune. Democrats then joined in and backed the liberal Republican ticket as the best chance to win. It was a formidable foe. But Republicans, under the popular President Grant, won handily. In 1812, a similar situation happened with the defection of Republicans from James Madison to DeWitt Clinton, the mayor of New York. But it did not sink James Madison. If you're running as a nominee of a party, 
You ought to have your party together. Unity, of course, helps. But unity alone is not a key to the White House. Especially some kind of a false unity, where there are real problems in the party and you're just putting some artificial glue to heal it together. Republicans unified the progressive and conservative factions in 1916. Now, this is four years after the the raucous 1912 election in which the party completely split. Roosevelt ran and Taft ran. Now it's 1916. They're together. They brought Roosevelt back into the party after his third-party bid. He was enthusiastic for the nominee, Charles Evans Hughes. But the result of the false unity was that the party was kind of flattened out. They could not decide between positions on important social legislation, on the emerging war in Europe, and Wilson kept the White House. The unity of Republicans in 1940, now this would be what would would become the third term of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, under the candidate Wendell Wilkie. Uh, The unity of the Republicans between internationalist and isolationist factions didn't work to unseat Roosevelt though it did have the participation of conservatives in the party like Herbert Hoover and internationalists in the party such as Wendell Wilkie. Didn't work in that year. While party disunity hurt the 1912 Republicans and the 68 and 72 Democrats, there is some hope for a candidate of a party that comes out of a situation of disunion. Elections are longer now than they used to be. Remember how early this 2008 election started. Really, February of 2007 or earlier. So what seems like a short time from the period of disunion to the actual election date could be considered a long time comparatively with past elections where a candidate might be nominated in the summer, take the summer off. The summer was never a big time for for politics and then start campaigning perhaps in September. And Americans tend to pay more attention than even as now in the final weeks of a campaign. And two nominees of disunified parties in fairly recent history, Humphrey and Ford, went on to have very tight elections by the time November came around. And in both cases, party voters who might have been disappointed by the choice of nominee, came back to them in the end. It would appear that at least for these candidates, that the disunity was a symptom rather than a cause. Has it not been in their, had it not been in their cases for Vietnam and Watergate, the party disunity might not have been factors in the general election. The same might prove true for the 2008 candidate. While party unity is something to look at, other indicators rise to the surface more quickly. Chapter 9, Age in the Presidency It may be that all that kept the Whig Party in America, the party backed by Henry Clay and Thurlow Weed, from being a major, significant party in U.S. history and a competitor to the Democratic Party was a coat, or perhaps the lack of one. When a former general, William Henry Harrison, was elected as a Whig, he decided to make his inauguration speech as so many others had before him, outside. But it was freezing cold weather. But Harrison, the old war hero, decided to make the speech without his coat. He made a long speech that lasted hours. And less than a month later, 
Harrison was dead of pneumonia. John Tyler, who was a Whig really in name only, his policies were closer to the Democrats on most things. He was only offered the vice presidential slot because he had opposed Andrew Jackson. Now John Tyler took office and blocked almost all of the Whigs' plans. He wouldn't listen to Weed or to Clay. He refused to institute a national bank of the United States, and he brought America to annexing Texas, something the Whigs bitterly opposed. The Whig party would win one more presidential election, fortunately another president that would die in office, and then the party would all but disappear. William Henry Harrison was 68 when he took office, and his age may have had some impact on future decisions about candidates, because no one that old would be a major candidate for the presidency again until 1980, when Ronald Reagan would win the presidency at age 69. He would then win re-election as a 73-year-old. Perhaps we should not be surprised by all this. After all, the Constitutional Convention, in its discussion of the office of the president, used words such as energy, dispatch, and vigor. At least those were words used by the pro-presidency delegates. In fact, it was the very reason folks like James Wilson, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, Pierce Butler, and others argued for a single executive, that only one person could be strong enough to handle the office. When the Virginia Plan, which is the first plan that the Constitution was roughly based on, though not all of its parts became the Constitution, when the Virginia Plan was proposed, there was no age requirement for the executive. This was probably because the Virginia Plan called for Congress to elect the president, something that never happened. And most likely the authors of the Virginia Plan figured that anyone good enough for Congress was good enough to be the executive. When it was moved to a popular vote through an electoral college, then a motion passed in the Constitutional Convention after a lot of discussion whether to institute things like a property requirement for being president, then a motion passed that the president should be at least 35 years of age, as well as being a U.S. citizen. Constitutional scholars argue that the age qualification was intended to be sure that the individual was of a certain maturity, and also to establish a record for electors to examine before choosing a president. But the age required was still fairly low, 35 years. President, of course, was intended from the beginning to be commander-in-chief of the armies. And the expectation, especially since most delegates assumed that Washington would be the first president, was that the president would lead the army himself. And that meant physically physically leading the army into battle. Indeed, Washington led the Provisional Army in the early days of the Republic against the Whiskey Rebels in the Pennsylvania. And during the quasi-French War in 1798, Adams was seen in the capital of Philadelphia, a sword by his side. Despite the image you may have of past presidents, being that they were indeed in the past, 17th and 18th century presidents were not senile. Washington, Jefferson were both 57 when they took office. Adams and James Monroe were 58. John Quincy Adams was also 57. Lincoln was a 55-year-old when he took office. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, by comparison, was 51. And Franklin Roosevelt was 62 when he was being called a tired old man by opponents. By age 63, he had died. Presidents tend to be younger than we think. The average age of a president... Assuming office is 54. In the 1800s, it's 54, as well as in the 20th century, 
54. Take out unelected presidents, and it drops a little bit, 53 and a half. The youngest president was Teddy Roosevelt, 41 when he assumed office, Kennedy, 42, and Clinton, 46. Age was an issue in 1944 when Dewey, the opponent of FDR, would give his tired old men speech, implying that the president was too old. And in 1984, when Reagan's performance on a debate against Walter Mondale raised questions about his competency and his control over his own facilities, an interesting thing happened, both cases. Americans based their decision still on the fundamentals and not on the age of the candidate. In 1944, it was the war, World War II, and the conduct of that war that carried the day. In 1984, economic improvements and perceived improvements in foreign policy in America's standing in the world led voters to re-elect Ronald Reagan, despite his age. If age is a factor, it's not getting underneath those fundamentals. Reagan remained well ahead of Walter Mondale, despite the speculation about his age. Even at the worst moment of the debate, he was still 12 points ahead of Mondale. The Dewey Brinker ticket of 1944 never touched Roosevelt Truman. Age works better, perhaps, not as an issue brought up in the campaign. It is a more subtle factor. In 1996, Clinton made a point of never appearing to attack the age of his opponent, Bob Dole. But the issue was there and showing up in opinion polls. And in 1984, Mondale gained when the issue was something he didn't bring up, something that was in the background after Reagan's performance in a speech. But once the issue was out in the surface, it no longer worked in the campaign. The history of presidential elections presents a mixed verdict on age. There are historical points towards preferring young people for president. The low age requirement, 35, and all the talk about energy and dispatch in the Constitutional Convention the view of the office, as a place of action. In elections since 1796, despite famous younger victors, the Kennedys and Clintons, old men beat younger men slightly more, 52% of the time. Interestingly enough, this statistic does not change, and in fact is a point higher in the 20th century than in the 19th century. While the television and the news media and the campaigns love the youngsters, Americans slightly prefer older men for president. But in truth, the difference is so statistically small as to be a negligible factor in American elections. Chapter 10. Summary and Prediction. Making a prediction based on history is risky business in many ways, and that's probably why so few people do it. But on the other hand, projecting the future based on what has happened in the past is as common as developing a business plan, predicting the weather, or using statistics to predict the outcome of a sports game. And while the names of politicians, the parties, and issues, and technologies change over time, a lot of the fundamentals of American politics do not. The political dynamics that helped elect John Adams in 1796 apply very much to John McCain in this year. Historical trends are not unbreakable, and it's always possible for a superior political actor to change history, to break the trends, or for unthought-of events to intercede. 
That's why such an analysis and a prediction can only represent the best assumption and most probable occurrence based on the information we have and based on history. Even a historic trend doesn't happen 100% of the time. It's still useful and with in combination with other historical trends and looking at them all, cross-checking them, it becomes nearly precise. An example is seen in the trend of a president almost always losing seats in their midterm election. That is the election two years from when they were elected president. Almost always a president's party will lose seats. Doesn't mean they'll lose the House, but they'll always lose seats. That was broken by Franklin Roosevelt in 1934. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt had superior political skills. The country was in a depression. Voters weren't finished punishing the Republican Party for the Great Depression that they were in. Roosevelt got more seats and more support for his New Deal programs. The trend of a president always losing seats in a second-term midterm election including Roosevelt, was broken by Bill Clinton in 1998 when voters were annoyed by the impeachment proceedings in the Congress and felt it had gone too far. And so the fairly consistent trend of a president coughing up the presidency for his party after he loses the House for his party could also be broken. Though I would also point out in this election that trend. So the fairly consistent trend of a president coughing up the presidency for their party after they have lost the House in the last midterm, a trend that's enhanced by the non-incumbent status of the nominee, could be broken by an excellent campaign on the part of John McCain. But a general election campaign in 2008 leaves him with less options could try to run from the president, run from President Bush. But historically speaking, that's not a promising strategy. And there isn't in many indications that uh, he would do that anyway. And the issues of the economy in Iraq make it difficult for McCain to create his own issues here. He's stuck with the issues of the incumbent. The economy, poor by all indicators, is not looking good for Republicans. It could see improvement, perhaps, with the stimulus packages and other steps but then a good economy is not a guarantee of election, while a bad economy is as close as history comes to a guarantee of defeat. These trends are like a net that traps the Republican Party's nominee in 2008, a nominee who otherwise has a lot of strength and probably was the best choice among the field this year. If this was a year that didn't have such monumental issues occurring, and if it was a more placid time, such as, say, the election of 2000, a candidate like McCain that does reach out, uh, who does reach out to Democrats, uh, who can poll well for a Republican, even in some Northeast states, and do much to sort of break that Northeast electoral lock the Democrats recently have. But are there advantages for the Republicans? A country at war normally helps incumbents. In this case, should help the Republicans. The swap horses effect. Why change parties when we're at war? And as we discussed in the section about wars, 
it's more than just a general sort of swap horses feeling. It's also a, a war has a crippling effect on a challenger because every time they challenge the incumbent, it can be seen as a lack of patriotism. But there, that effect is definitely mitigated by the number of years we're talking about. But the Iraq War, along with Vietnam, are the only two wars that have transversed two presidential elections. So what was an advantage possibly in 2004 is limited now by 2008. McCain gets no advantage from his home state of Arizona, although the state has grown in electoral votes since Barry Goldwater was the nominee in 1964. But he's not grown enough to be significant in the electoral college. And whoever he picks for the vice presidential candidate will not change the fundamentals of the election could have a small electoral college advantage here or there, but will not change fundamentals. So you're going to hear over the course of the campaign, the media talk about surprises, who's going to be the VP pick, uh, different types of strategies, negative attacks, TV commercials, etc., who's spending money where, what states are important. But analyzing the history, we see that there really aren't a lot of different ways to do this campaign and come out with a different result. Oddly enough, the only historical trend that turns towards McCain is his age. And that's something you'll hear from no other source. The media, uh, this election, will be focusing on McCain's age as a negative. But actually, the historical trend is that it's a positive, although a very slight one, extremely close. But generally, the older presidential candidate wins. I believe the most important factor American voters will look at is the performance of the party who's in the White House. Americans had no idea who Jimmy Carter was in 1974. Few Americans did, probably even in 1975. And there were few Americans outside of the true political junkies who knew about a governor of Arkansas named Bill Clinton before 1991. Few may saw him as a keynote speaker of the 1988 convention. Really, who pays attention to that? And yet both these men were elected president, mostly because of the performance of the incumbent administration and the incumbent party and the desire for change. McCain may benefit somewhat from the disunity that Democrats have displayed this election. But history has shown that voters usually come back by the time of Election Day, and there will be plenty of time to stitch things up for Democrats. The issues between Republicans and Democrats this year are heated, and given the one of the most unpopular presidents uh, in recent times, it's difficult to see too many Democratic defections, though there will be some. I must add another note. At the time of recording this, I am not aware of who will be the nominee of the Democratic Party. It is most likely, of course, it will either be Senator Barack Obama or Senator Hillary Clinton, which will be a history-making event in and of its own, because uh, not only uh, do these candidates represent a woman and an African-American, but all three of the candidates are sitting senators, and we could have the first time since 1960 that a sitting senator would be elected. 
I don't believe in my analysis there is much difference between a nominee, uh, between Hillary Clinton being the nominee or Barack Obama being the nominee. The person that earns the party's nomination will have earned a significant amount of delegates and an amount of support among the leaders of the party to be the nominee, uh, representing at least some organizational strength in the party and in the various state party organizations. The most important player in the election of 2008 is not on the ballot. He is President Bush. By turning everything around, by fixing Iraq, by improving the economy, raising his own approval ratings so that his endorsement of McCain would actually help him win the election. If he did all that, it's possible he could change the outcome, regardless of the trends we discussed. But I think it's a sensible and reasonable prediction that there's not enough time, and there's not enough inclination, and there's just not enough momentum and ability in this administration to fix all these problems in this short period of time. There are a couple other possibilities to discuss. A war, another terrorist attack on American soil. A war at this time may help a little bit with a rally-around-the-flag factor and a focus on issues that might help Republicans. But it would come along with problems and conflicts with Congress and with foreign governments. And most likely, it would exacerbate the economic problems to such an extent as to eliminate any surge in patriotism that might result. In terms of a terrorist attack, and this, of course, is all speculation, but I believe Americans are no longer completely surprised by the fact that we have terrorist enemies seeking to attack us. And that is already in the electoral calculations. And that while it would certainly work to reframe issues and the talking points of candidates for the remainder of the election, I don't believe such an event would change the fundamentals. A spoiler could emerge, and there's even the possibility that two spoilers could emerge, one conservative and one liberal. Spoilers tend to work better when parties are close, and on Iraq and the economy, there are such differences between the two parties right now that there's less room for a, a spoiler candidate to sneak in. There's also a slight historical evidence that spoilers tend not to hurt challengers. Perot's impressive showing in the 1992 election, while it did pull somewhat from President Bush, pulled more from President Clinton, who, who might have won if September 92 polls are any indication, something like 52% of the vote. And in 1968, George Wallace ran, and while he did take votes from Richard Nixon in the South and take some votes from Hubert, Hubert Humphrey uh, among labor unions and other Democratic constituencies, Nixon was still elected despite the presence of Wallace in the election. Considering the trends that we've discussed, particularly the approval rating of a president, the party that occupies the House, the economy, the country at war, the age of the candidates, disunity among the parties, overall there seems to be an advantage to a Democrat. Historical trends would seem to indicate the Democratic candidate will be elected and that the election will not be Extremely close. This will not be another year 2000, although I wouldn't venture an actual guess on the Electoral College win. I hope you've enjoyed this look at history and this considered opinion and prediction 
of the presidential election we're in, 2008. And I do thank you for listening. I'm Bruce Carlson. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.